So we're celebrating the second week of Advent. Last week, Ryan taught on hope. You heard what Advent was about, the coming of Christ. Next week, Greg's going to talk on joy, and then Mike's going to wrap us up with a message on love. But today, we're going to focus on peace. So my intent this morning is to take you through a journey of how peace works in God's kingdom. We're going to talk about spiritual peace, peace with God through Jesus Christ, internal peace, the peace of God, and then what are we supposed to do with that? Taking the peace of Christ into the world. So we already read Isaiah 9, 6 this morning. Thanks, Greg, for for covering that. The the big thing that I wanted you to take out of that, out of that passage, is the idea of Jesus being the Prince of Peace. So he is our Prince of Peace. What does that mean? Especially in light of all the craziness that's going on in this world. How can we have peace? So this world seems to be falling apart. There's violence all over the city of Anchorage. There's violence in the state. There's violence in the world. And it seems like the world's falling apart, doesn't it? You can read the news and you can read about Syria. You can read about Iraq. You can read about Afghanistan. You can read about drug wars in Mexico. You can read about refugees in Europe. And things just seem like it's crazy. Even in San Bernardino, California this past week, right? Seems like it's starting to reach a little closer to home. So how can we have peace in the midst of all of this? And like Ryan discussed last week, even for non-Christians, there's still a hope, right? There's still a a longing for something that's missing. It doesn't seem right that all of this chaos is going on in the world. So before we go further, I want to kind of define what the world sees as peace, and then we're going to go from there and see what the Bible has to say about it. So let me set this video up for you. Um, As I was doing research for for this message, Um, found a couple of videos that kind of talk about how the world sees peace. So the first one is some kids giving their perspective on their desire for peace. And then it's going to morph. Thank you, Aurelia, for doing the video editing for me. It's going to morph into a more academic discussion about what the world desires in terms of peace. So keep that in mind. And then keep in mind some of the symbolism that comes out of this as well. We're going to talk briefly about that too. So Nate, can you cue that up for us? Thanks. I think the whole world should be peaceful. It's never fun to get bullied. It's just embarrassing. In other states or countries, there's a lot of trash there, and I just wish like we could um, go there and pick it all up. If there was peace, there wouldn't be any more war. I think kids want peace. I think everybody in the world wants peace because it helps everything run easier and sometimes it's just hard to know where to start. It is time for us to reclaim what peace really means. Peace is not kumbaya my lord. Peace is not the dove and the rainbow as lovely as they are. When I see the symbols of the rainbow and the dove, I think of personal serenity. I think of meditation. I do not think about what I consider to be peace, which is sustainable peace with justice and equality. It is a sustainable peace in which the majority of people on this planet have access to enough resources to live dignified lives, where these people have enough access to education 
and health care so that they can live in freedom from want and freedom from fear. Interesting, huh? I mean, it's a good definition from a worldly standpoint. I mean, a lot of those things I agree with. Things like freedom from fear, freedom from want, access to education, those are all good things in and of themselves. But is it lasting? Is it going to work? The, uh, the symbol of the rainbow and the dove, um, I've watched this video a few times now, obviously, and it didn't hit me until yesterday that the symbol of the rainbow and the dove are biblical. You guys know where that comes from? The Noah and the Ark, right? And so, just briefly covering that story, the Noah sends the dove out as the waters are starting to recede, and it comes back with the olive branch in its mouth. And it's a representation of God's wrath receding from the earth. And then the rainbow is the promise later on when they finally make it to land that God says, I'll never destroy the, the world by, by flood again. And so here we are as a world community saying, that's not really peace. The taming of God's wrath is not really peace. That, that gave me pause this morning as I was praying about this. Like, whoa. And did you know that the world is actually not as bad as we think? It really blew me away as I was doing research for this. Can you throw up that next slide there, Nate? If you look at these graphs, the world is in the best. I know it's kind of an eye chart, and I'll explain it to you as we go through it. The world is actually in the best shape that it's ever been. So if you start with the upper left-hand corner, it's a graph that shows uh, world governments and their progression from autocracy, so dictatorships, to democracy. And you see in the red line, autocracy is on decline, and democracy is on the rise. So the vast, not vast, but the majority of governments in the world are becoming more democratic, giving people more of a, of a say. The one on the right there speaks to war battle deaths by region and conflicts in the world. And if you look at the graph as a whole, yes, there's been spikes as we've had conflicts from World War II onto the present, but they're starting to taper off and deaths from war is starting to decline. There was another slide I didn't throw up there that shows that uh, murders from mass uh, executions and mass killings is also in decline going back to the 1800s. This one on the bottom right here shows how life expectancy in the world population has been increasing since the 1800s. And really, if you go back all the way to biblical times, we're living longer than we ever have going back to, like, say, Abraham, who lived 100 and something years old. The average life expectancy now is about 80-something for those in Japan, and I think it's 70-something now here in the United States. And that's the highest it's been, according to that chart, going back to 1800. And then the one on the left really blew me away, declining global poverty. So just back in October of this year, 2015, CNN Money uh, posted an article that said that extreme poverty levels in the world are at their lowest level ever. So back in 2012, there was about 900 million people that were living in extreme poverty, and they defined it as living on $1.90 a day. And today, in 2015, it's at 700 million people. That's still a lot of people. That's twice the size of the United States. But as a percentage of the world's population, it's less than 10%. So if you look throughout the last several hundred years, that percentage, less than 10% of the world living in extreme poverty, has never happened. It's the best it's ever been. So the world, yes, it needs a lot of help and it needs a lot of work, but it's, it's the best it's ever been. So why are we saying that we need peace? It doesn't feel like it, does it? We still got a long way to go, don't get me wrong. But it feels like the world is worse than ever, right? 
Why is there still such discord, hatred, and anger in the world? I think it's because as soon as the spirit of the Antichrist sets in, so what do I mean by that? That's kind of a revelation weird term. It's described in the Bible as the spirit that denies Jesus is the Christ. That's what Antichrist means. As soon as that sets in, true peace is lost, and humanity tries to continue in safety, security, and prosperity apart from God. And it's a futile effort. We lose the peace of God when we try to have peace apart from God. This is a divisive word. It's not something that the world wants to hear. You saw it in the video. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, 39, if you could throw that up there, Nate, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me, skipping to verse 37, is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So what's he talking about there? I think he's talking about where's your peace coming from? Where's your hope coming from? Is it coming from family? Which back then, that was a pretty big deal. Your tribe and your family were everything. Financial security, safety, social acceptance. Are those the things that you're hoping in for peace? Because anything apart from Christ is going to produce a false peace, a peace that doesn't last. The world imagines peace. It longs for tranquility and end to war, end to violence, equality for all people groups, opportunity for people to live their lives, pursue their dreams, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right, for us as Americans. The world is longing for peace, the peace of God, but wants it without the peace with God. Consequently, the world doesn't know true peace. Only Christ can bring, bring peace with God. Everything else is just temporary and doesn't last. And I've, I've got an example of what that looks like and how kind of almost silly it kind of seems. So back in World War I, the first year of the war of World War I, we lost a million soldiers. A million people were killed in World War I, the first year alone. That December of 1914, which we celebrated the 100-year anniversary of this event last year, there was a truce. Have you guys heard about this? Have you seen documentaries on it? So Christmas Eve of 1914, Germans on their side of the line lit some candles, but instead of leading a charge, they started singing Silent Night in German. And the English responded by singing English Christmas carols. And so an informal truce ensued. So Christmas morning, the guns went silent. Curious soldiers were brave enough to peek their heads over the trenches and cross into no man's land, which at that point meant you were going to get mowed down by a machine gun. But that morning, it didn't happen. The soldiers met in the middle in no man's land, and they exchanged cigarettes. They exchanged um, greetings. They, I think even a soccer game was played. They buried each other's dead. They shared in each other's funerals. Even the Psalm 20, the 23rd Psalm was read that morning. It's amazing. Peace in the middle of a war that lost a million people. But it didn't last, did it? December 26th, a British soldier fired three shots in the air, raised the banner that said, Merry Christmas. A German officer fired two shots in the air, raised the banner that said, Thank you. And then it was kicked off again. In 1918, four years later, was when the war finally ended. 18 million people were killed in World War I. And I've done some study as a military guy in World War I, and it's one of the most atrocious wars ever in our history. I don't think even World War II, some of the things that happened in World War I did not happen in World War II. 
Just an example of how crazy it is, right? So here's this piece that was there. It was tangible. There was guys playing soccer in the middle of no man's land, and then 18 million people were killed right after. Jeremiah 8.11 says, They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. So the, word, the Bible's definition of peace is a little different than the world's definition. So if you throw up these definitions that, I've, that I found up there, as I was doing some research for this a few months ago, so before I knew I was speaking on peace, uh, so Ryan mentioned how we had sat around and we divvied up how we were going to do the Advent series, and I immediately jumped on peace because a couple of months prior to Greg and I talking about this, I learned about what shalom means and what shalomize means in the Bible, and it really got me excited. So shalom in the Bible doesn't just indicate a warless state or absence of conflict. It, it means, and by the way, if I didn't already say it, shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, the noun. Shalomize is the, the verb. So in the Bible, shalom doesn't just indicate a warless state or absence of conflict. It means a state of completeness, wholeness, harmony, undividedness. So think before the fall in the garden. And then shalomize, to bring peace... The implication there is that wholeness is achieved or restored most often by some kind of restitution. That when I read that in this uh, research that I was doing, it it blew me away. So the concept in the Bible from the get-go, the idea of peace, is that there was something that was broken, something that was lost, and it needed to be paid for. It's based on the idea that harmony that once was in the garden was damaged, it was ruined, It was lost, and what was once good and whole was now severed. And it must be made whole by restitution, a payment, a payback for what was lost or damaged. Christ's death on the cross was that restitution. He was the price for the penalty that that was required for the brokenness that happened in the Garden of Eden. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, it says in Isaiah 53.5. And that phrase explains how Christ's sacrifice for us restored us to God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the foreshadowing of Christ's death to this moment in time when he redeems us. He satisfies the debt incurred by our sin. Sacrificial lamb and the Mosaic law throughout the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of Christ dying on the cross for our sin. You can do a whole study on that. That's pretty amazing right there. Uh, he died to pay our penalty so that we could be set free. And in Ephesians 2, 13 through 17, Paul describes this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So basically, he died on the cross, and because of that sacrifice, the enmity that God had towards us no longer existed. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, a reference to the Gentiles, and a peace to those who were near, a reference to the Jews. So Jesus is our access to the peace of God. He saves us from God's wrath. He redeems us by his blood. And then we're able to have the peace of God. There's no peace for the wicked, it says in Isaiah 48 and 57. We can't have peace 
of God if we're not at peace with God. Does that make sense? That's an important, important thing to understand. So let me be clear. Peace with God starts with salvation. It starts with being reconciled to God. But understand it's only the first step. So we've got this idea sometimes in Christianity that we're saved and everything's good. I'm good to go. Well, it's not quite how it works. And as I was studying this, this gave me pause because we think that way, don't we? I'm saved. Jesus saved me. I'm good. Not quite. The, way, the analogy that, that, that came to mind as I was thinking about this concept uh, were para-jumpers in the, in the Air Force. So I'm an Air Force guy, and I've met a couple of PJs. Uh, these guys are amazing men. I got to hear one speak a few years ago. So think of a guy who's gone to, through medical training, is almost the equivalent of a doctor. They're not quite doctors, but yet they have the courage of a special forces soldier. So these guys get into these helicopters that the Air Force runs, and they, they go into the middle of the battle, guns still blazing, guns shooting. They fast rope in. They stabilize victims. They're shooting back at the enemy if need be, if they're in the middle of a gunfight, and they get them out. So I got to hear uh, a guy tell his story about this, and it, it brought me to tears, the way that these guys are able to think medically on the battlefield under gunfire, patch a guy up, get him in a helicopter, and get him going. And so when that soldier who's wounded on the battlefield is saved by a PJ and put in a helicopter, he's saved from further harm. He's saved from death. But that's just the beginning, right? He still has injuries that are sustained. He still has maybe a loss of a limb, maybe loss of, an, of eyesight. So he's got to go through surgery. He's got to go through healing. He's got to go through physical therapy. He's got to learn to live with whatever wound he sustained in battle. And it's no different for us in the Christian life, right? Jesus comes into our lives and he saves us from death. He saves us from further harm. But we're wounded, aren't we? We're hurt. We got some things in our past that we got to deal with. And that stuff has to be healed and has to be dealt with in order for us to have peace. Right? When we're at peace with God, though, and we do have that access to the Father, we have access to the same peace that was enjoyed by the Trinity before the creation of, of the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect peace. And we have access to that when, we're peace, when we are at peace with God. Philippians 4, 5 through 7, familiar verse. Can you throw it up on the screen there? That's the uh, ESV version. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that transcends understanding. Let me read it to you in the Amplified Bible translation. Do not fret or have any anxiety about anything, but in everything, every circumstance and situation, by prayer and petition, definite requests with thanksgiving, continue to make your specific requests known to God. And when I read that twice, specific and definite requests, that got my attention, because a lot of times I pray in generalities, right? Lord, bless the whole world, peace on earth, goodwill to men. We're supposed to pray in specific requests, you know? And that means being involved in people's lives and knowing what's going on in people's lives, right? And God's peace shall be yours, that tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and being content with its earthly lot of whatever sort that is, 
that peace, which transcends all understanding, shall not just guard, but garrison and mount guard over your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the same image of those PJs that are protecting the wounded soldier on the battlefield from further harm from the enemy, that's the idea. That peace guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The Lord is near. First verse there, in verse 5. The Lord is near. Do you realize that he's near? Do you realize he's right there with you? In the midst of whatever's frustrating you, whatever's stressing you out, whatever's persecuting you, whatever problem you have in your life, whatever you're going through, he's right there. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit, it says in Psalm 34, 18. He will never leave you nor forsake you, in Hebrews 13, 5. But you've got to be willing to submit to him. You've got to be willing to surrender. So a few years ago, Liz and I, we used to live in Virginia, and when we were there, we were part of a ministry called SMART. Street Missions and Restoration Team was what the acronym stood for. Basically, that meant that we would go and we'd bag groceries at a warehouse, 150 to 200 bags of food, and then we'd take it to downtown Newport News, Virginia, which is near Virginia Beach, and we'd meet with the homeless population out there. And we would do this just about every Saturday. I think the ministry still does it today. And as you do that every Saturday morning, you develop a following, obviously, and you get to know some of the folks that are out there. Some people will leave for a time and they'll come back. And one of the guys that I got to know, he would go and come back occasionally, was a guy named Raphael. He was a sailor, so he would sail on a merchant marine vessel and go off for a couple months on a ship, and then he'd come back, and when he came back to port, he was essentially homeless. And uh, Raphael professed to be a Christian, although he, he loved the bottle a little too much. And uh, one morning, he came, and he was, he was a little bit intoxicated. He was drunk and smelling of alcohol, but he, he wanted to be prayed for. And we said, hey, do you want us to pray for, for you to be delivered of alcohol? And he said, yeah, I want you to pray for me. So Raphael got down on one knee like this, and we encircled him. We put hands on him, and we started praying for Raphael. And then he got down on two knees, and we thought, oh, wow, we're, we're starting to make some, some progress here. And it felt like the spirit was moving, and, and we were praying hard. And then all of a sudden, Raphael shrugged us off. He got up, and he said, no, I can't do this. I'm done. I don't want it. And he walked away. And it rocked my world. I was like, whoa, my theology was rocked in that moment. That's not supposed to happen when you're praying for somebody. <laughs> So what happened? Um, that's a topic for another day, right? <laughs> we'll be here too long if I do that. So what happened that morning is Raphael didn't keep his eyes fixed on Christ. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And that morning, Raphael didn't trust that God could do the work. He fixated on that medicating of alcohol. He loved that vice a little bit more than he loved God. I guess that's it, right? That's the theological thing there. He wasn't ready to surrender that addiction just yet. He wasn't willing to submit. So he shrugged us off and he walked off. He left. I don't even know if he took a bag of food or not. I've been thinking about Raphael lately, wondering how he's doing. Prayed for him, as I recalled his story a couple weeks ago. And it saddened me as I was praying for him that he didn't submit to the Lord that day. Lost touch with him, so I don't know how he's doing. Lord, we pray that you would bless Raphael wherever he is, Lord. But for the grace of God go we, right? Because what do we not submit to every day? This week the Lord was, um, was inviting me to come to him. So Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 30 
says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That one really stuck with me this morning, or this week, because I realized that in all the stress that I face in my life, and all the busyness that's going on, sometimes I don't come to the Lord for peace. Sometimes it's a book, sometimes it's a movie, sometimes it's a nap, which are good things. That could be the provision of the Lord, his rest, right? But if I'm turning to that before I turn to the Lord, then something's off there. At least for me, that's, that's what was convicting me this week. But let me read to you the same verse in the message translation. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Are you sleeping through the sermon now because I have a monotone voice? That's not in there. <laughs> Come to me, Jesus is saying. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So we have to be willing to submit and to surrender to that, that voice that Jesus has given us. Do you realize that he has a peace for every problem you face? As I was researching peace in the Bible, I learned that there's over 790 verses related to peace throughout the Bible. We don't have time to go into all of them, obviously, but just a few of them we th- I throw up there for you. Peace for stress, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. We just read that one, be anxious for nothing. Peace for financial problems. My God will supply my needs according to his riches and glory. Peace for fear, I will be with you. Do not fear. Peace for tribulation. In me you may have peace. Take heart, I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. Do you believe it? Do you believe you take him at his word when he says he has a peace for you, whatever problem you're going through? He promises to take us to where we can have peace with him, and there he can start to sanctify us, transform us, get us to the place where we can be healed. And then from there, we can become sanctified, and we're able to go into the world from there and take his peace into the world. So, Mike and I were discussing the sermon the other day, and he reminded me that the word sanctification is a term that was used in the Old Testament for how they used to take the utensils and the vessels that were in the temple, and they would clean them, they'd wash them, they'd anoint them in oil, they'd pray over them, and they'd make them holy for the purposes of God's service in his house. It's no different with us. When we're saved and we're healed, we're sanctified, we're made holy to serve God's purposes. So once we have the peace of God, because we have peace with God, we can then take that peace into the world. 2 Corinthians 5.18 calls this the ministry of reconciliation. And I'm going to read the Amplified Bible version of this because I think it explains it a little better. But all things are from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us, made peace to himself, received us into favor, brought us into harmony with himself, and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, that by word and deed we might aim to bring others into harmony with him. That by word and deed we might bring others into harmony with him. That's the idea there. So we've got peace that we share with others in the world. But you can't give what you don't have, right? So you've got to have that peace, the peace of God. And then take it to every relationship that we come across, whether it's people that you're just passing by, Friends, family, opponents, enemies, even. 
But you can't comfort somebody if you're bound up in fear and anxiety or mistrust because it means that you have to enter into their pain. You have to enter into what they're feeling in order to understand it. Peacemaker in the Bible. Peacemakers who sow a peace raise a harvest of righteousness in James 3.18. So from a worldly standpoint, peacemaker, that's a military term, actually. So there's peacekeeper, which is kind of like security. Peacemaker, think B-52 dropping bombs. That's the worldly standpoint of peacemaking. You suppress an enemy, you take out the threat, you take out the troublemakers, suppress the behaviors that are wrong, but that's not the biblical definition of peacemaker. In Hebrew, peacemaking, we talked about it before, is whole making. It's the same word, shalemize. It's the same, word, the same idea that's used in Matthew 5, 9 when it says that we're to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's the same idea in Romans 12, 9 where it says live at peace with everyone. Kind of hard to do in a world where there's a lot of craziness going on, a lot of people trying to kill us, right? But before we get to that, before we get to enemies, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's about carrying their burdens. It's about entering into their pain. With the lost, persons of peace, which we'll break out that definition here in a minute, it's about living out the gospel, sharing the truth in love. Luke 10, 5 through 6 says, When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, If someone promotes peace, If someone who promotes peace is there, in other versions it says a person of peace, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. So Mike Breen and Steve Cockrum, they wrote this book called Building a Discipleship Culture, which hopefully we'll get to do uh, later on in huddle groups uh, as we go forward as a church. They define a person of peace as someone God has prepared for for a specific time. So basically God's been working on this person's heart, been getting their attention, through kairos moments, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Greg. Basically, the kairos moment is something that grabs your attention, a moment in time, and they're paying attention to that. God's starting to work on them. And when, somebody, when God brings somebody who's in that state along with you, and you have peace, you're able to engage, and then something miraculous starts to happen there as you contribute to what God's doing in their life. God does the work, we obey in the moment and give them access to our lives and our peace. So what does this look like practically? There's this guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you guys heard of him? Some people have. He's a German theologian. He's a pastor during Nazi Germany in World War II era. Um, He's known for quite a few things. His dad was a famous German psychiatrist. He wrote a book called uh, The Cost of Discipleship, which goes over a lot of the stuff that's in here. Bonhoeffer opened his life up to a bunch of dudes. A lot of them died during World War II because they were drafted by the German army. I'm going to read an excerpt from his biography by Eric Metaxas, and this is a quote from one of his disciples, a guy named Otto Dudzis. He said, whatever he, Bonhoeffer, had and whatever he was, he made that accessible to others. The great treasure he possessed was the cultivated, elegant, highly educated, open-minded home of his parents, to which he introduced us, the men he was discipling. The open evenings, which took place every week, had such an atmosphere that they became a piece of home for us. His home was open for disciples and family to come, eat, play music, sing together, discuss, laugh, tell stories on Friday nights. Bonhoeffer did not separate his Christian life from his family life. 
He opened it up and shared with everybody. Later on, he did the same thing when he was a prisoner in German prison. Catholics, Protestants, atheists alike, to the point where even the atheist that was in prison with him asked that he do an Easter service, which turned out to be a few days before he was executed. And he had a peace. He told uh, one of the uh, Protestants that was with him as he was getting called out by the guards, it's my time to go, but it's the beginning of my life. Pretty amazing. Amazing man. Do you have a peace like that? Hopefully most of us won't be asked to have that kind of peace in the face of execution. But what about the hard things that God's calling us to do? Especially in an era where our reality is not Nazism, but terrorism and refugees. So Liz and I took in a refugee uh, several years ago. When we lived in Oklahoma, uh, we got to know Melody, who uh, was a refugee from Hurricane Katrina. She was from Louisiana. And uh, she was, what, 19 years old when we met her? When she was 16, her mom was murdered, never knew her dad. So for those last few years until adulthood, she was raised by her grandparents. And then she moved to Oklahoma to try to go to college, and she was going to live with an aunt and an uncle, and it turns out her uncle was abusive. So we get to know her as we meet her at church, and Liz feels that Lord, the Lord is telling us to take this girl in. So here's this girl whose mom was murdered, and she's had a rough upbringing, and we've got Aurelia and Krista, who were, I think at the time were like three and five years old. And so I'm thinking, this doesn't sound like a great idea to me. <laughs> So we prayed about it. We took a couple days to, to think about it. And then I felt the Lord give me a response of, this one's going to be easy. This one? <laughs> what? <laughs> There's going to be more? And uh, so the Lord gave me a piece to take in Melody, and we did. She lived with us for about six months, and then she moved away and came back again for a few more months. And Today she's living in the Netherlands. She's married and has a child and thinks very fondly of our time with Aurelia and Krista and Liz and I. We shared the peace of our home with her. That's all we did. But I think that God might be calling us to do the same. You realize there's Syrian refugees that might be heading to Anchorage? Pastor Greg mentioned it a couple weeks ago. They're coming to Anchorage. 18 unreached people groups within Syria. So missionaries have been trying to get to Syria to reach these people for the last 100, 150 years, and guess what? They're coming here, and we're going to have an opportunity to share the gospel with them, and we need to be ready. We need to be able to share the peace of God that we enjoy with them. Okay, so a brief note about loving your enemy. I wanted to talk on this a bit, because Jesus tells us to do it, does he not? Love your enemies. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That idea there is not just blissful indifference. It's just not just, it does say turn the cheek, but it's not just turning the cheek because you don't care. That's not what it's saying. It's an intense understanding of who your enemy is. And what that does is it does one of three things. Either one, you understand your enemy so much that you're able to change them for the better, or you understand that maybe you're in the wrong, so you change, and there's no longer enmity between you and the other person. Or the situation's not going to change. They're evil for evil's sake. And then in that situation, 
in the Old Testament used to say you devote them over to God. And in, for the Israelites, that meant you took care of them. You took them out. From our standpoint, from a personal standpoint, it means that you give them over to God and you let God handle the work there. There's a difference between personal responsibility and government responsibility that I won't get into there, but the, uh, the idea is that we're supposed to love our enemies and know them so intensely that either they change, we change, or you devote them over to God. That's the concept there. And when you devote them over to God, that's just not just throwing your hands up. That's really trusting that God is going to do what he does. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce talks about how when we enter into God's presence, if we don't have Christ, we're not going to be able to stand. It's going to be so intense that it's like you're being evaporated. The closest thing that I could find as a representation, if you throw that picture up, is a picture of Gandalf riding on the horse in The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you know how he takes the light into the battle and it makes all the bad guys shoo away? Just imagine that times 100. You know, evil cannot stand in God's presence. And that's what we're trusting in when we devote something over to God. But that's God's role. Our role is to love, to love our enemies to love our family, to love the people that we don't know on the street even. The, the world needs the peace of God, but even more so it needs peace with God. But until it recognizes that there's no peace apart from God, it's going to continue to suffer. Statistics will continue to show improvement to the, to the world. Progress will continue to happen. The world will continue to get better. And guess what? The world is not going to feel that peace. Because success doesn't equal peace. Financial security doesn't equal peace. Safety doesn't equal peace. Social acceptance, respect, honor, those things don't necessarily equal peace. Peace doesn't come from our circumstances. Only Christ gives us peace. Only submission to him daily brings about the change that will bring that peace that we need. The spiritual, emotional, and relational peace, as Rick Warren puts it. This is the peace journey of the Christian life. Can you throw up the, the triangle slide there? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Up and out. Peace with God. Peace of God, internal. And then we're able to take it out into the world. So where are you at on this triangle here? Where are you in this journey? Are you still struggling with finding peace with God? Are you still at enmity with him? Because if you are, we're going to pray here in a minute and you'll have an opportunity to be reconciled with him through Jesus Christ. Maybe you are a Christian, but you still have battle wounds that uh, need to be healed. And we'll take time to pray so those wounds can be healed. That's, that's something, some of the sin in our life is far-reaching. The consequences of how we lived as sinners has repercussions that we need to walk through. God can save us from our consequences, but that's typically not how he works. He typically uses those things to help us learn and grow so we can relate to others, so we can take the peace of Christ to the world. Jesus is our peace. We need to embrace him, keep our eyes focused on him, not on the waves. So Peter was focused on Christ, and then he started looking at the waves around him, and he started to sink. We need to keep our eyes focused on Christ. He will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on him.
So let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, we just take this moment, this opportunity, as we learned about peace, that we need your peace, Lord. We need to be reconciled to you if we're not. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, Lord, we just ask if there's anybody here that does not know you, that you would just continue to tug on their heart right now, Lord, and and show them their need for you.